Amen. Amen. Let's welcome Tim. Thanks, brother. Thanks, everybody. You know, I just noticed, and I don't have a beard, and uh, I'm allowed to preach at New City Church, which I think is, uh, you know, I'm, we're starting a revolution, guys. The non-bearded guys are, come, are on their way back, right, Todd? Yeah. Uh, so, man, it's so good to be with you guys. I think, because I've heard so much, I've been here a few times with my wife and uh, our son. We now have two sons, so the testosterone house is peaking every day. It's getting higher. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're pumped about it, though. Uh, and it's just great to be with you guys because uh, I don't know if anybody knows the statistic. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. But anybody know how many churches there are in San Diego? There's all kinds of answers coming at me right now. But yeah, there's one. There's one church, and the senior pastor is Jesus. And uh, so it's really great to be with my brothers and sisters down here in the south uh, I used to live down here, actually. Um, a little bit of my story, just to get an idea of who I am. Uh, I grew up in Thousand Oaks, and I went to Thousand Oaks High School, and played sports. I was kind of a bigger guy. Well, actually, I was fat, but I'll just say I was a little bit of a bigger guy. But So, I, of course, you know, if you play sports and you're a bigger guy, you play football, and they put you on the line, and so that's what I did. And uh, I did that for most of my high school career. Um, and then at one point, I kind of just like turned into a, a, just a, a fully bigger guy. I, my body changed, and so uh, I was good, which was, which was fun. And I was a defensive end, and I played O-line also at times. And I started both ways as a senior. I was one of the team captains as a senior. And then I got hurt. I dislocated my shoulder during Hell Week. Uh, dove at a guy to try to make a block, and I dislocated my shoulder. And uh, I was rated at that time like one of the top linemen in, the, in all of the L.A., greater L.A. area. Um, Thousand Oaks is about halfway from L.A. to Santa Barbara in the 805 uh, Ventura County. And um, I came back five weeks later to try to, try to get back at it again. Um, was on the defensive line this time. Dove at a guy to make a tackle. Um, and I popped my shoulder out again. So dislocated, waited five weeks, came back, boom, popped it out again senior year over. I never put pads on my whole senior year. I watched every single game from the sidelines and I uh, was super depressed about it. <laughs> and um, that was actually a time in my life where uh, I had grown up being dragged to youth group and I had a lot of theologies about God and Jesus and all that stuff. And when all that hit the fan, I said, you know, God, if this is what you're going to do with my life, I'm out of here. I'm doing things my way. And uh, so... I did what anybody wanted to do if they wanted to go party in college. I went to San Diego State. And so uh, I came down here, which you'll see. I'm using the New Living Translation. That's part of the reason. So I went to state. So I like normal man's language uh, for the Bible. And, um, but from San Diego State, uh, did what any party guy would do. I joined a fraternity. And um, I, I chased that down. and had to become the president of my fraternity my junior year, Sigma Chi at San Diego State. And... Uh, it was at that point in my life, and I'll, I'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, it was when I really met Jesus for the first time powerfully. And from that, I uh, graduated. God started putting some guys in my life uh, that really became brothers for the first time. And I got a job through one of my fraternity brothers to work at Harper Construction in Little Italy. We did a lot of military projects at Camp Pendleton. Did that for about four years. I had some other jobs before that, but that was my first career. And it was that time that I met uh, Allison. We got married, my wife. And we settled in Encinitas, Lucadia specifically. And uh, it was during that time working in that construction job that God really 
um, started to move in my heart in new ways. I think being married kind of launched me into a new phase of my relationship with Jesus and my dependency on him. And uh, he just started stirring something in my heart that was really unquenchable. And um, I ended up deciding or feeling led to just leave the corporate world. I was a project manager, and I just knew that God was calling me to something else. Uh, that's a whole really long story I won't get into, but it ended up being FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And FCA required me to raise support, so I quit a well-paying job and went to meeting with people face-to-face over coffee to ask them if they'll give to me financially, which was like, what in the world am I doing? And I, you know, my, my prayer the whole time was, God, if this isn't you, please mess this whole thing up so I don't ruin my life and my future and all that. Uh, thankfully, it was him, and all these cool things happened, and so I've been with FCA for five years now. Um, what that means is I hang out a lot with high school kids. Uh, I coach football at a school up in North County. We live in Encinitas still. And, uh, you know, we're just sharing the gospel on campus with a lot of kids that normally just wouldn't hear about it. Usually at lunch, usually in a classroom. And um, we just have guest speakers and maybe some celebrity athletes or somebody come. It's just a safe place for people to discover God together, whether they come from a faith ground or not. Uh, we try to create a safe space where people can come hear that they're loved, hear that God has a purpose for them, and all that good stuff. Um, in the midst of that, FCA transition and all that stuff, my buddy Aaron came to me and said, hey, I really want to plant a church. And uh, I've been looking and reading, and there's this whole, there's this whole thing going on up in the Northwest called Soma Communities, and you got to check this out because uh, they're doing some really cool stuff. And he gave me a couple books, and I started reading about uh, churches that wanted to actually live life on life together, actually know each other, live as the family of God, live as those that serve Jesus and, and serve each other, and those that live their life on mission in the everyday stuff of life, not just a once a week type thing that I had grown up with. And, I, and my heart lit on fire, and I said, yeah, I want to be all about that. So we planted what was Groundswell Communities. But about two years in, Aaron, two and a half, Aaron was diagnosed with Huntington's disease um, maybe six or so years before that time. But Huntington's disease is, is a genet- g- genetic uh, disorder, essentially, that um, it's a degenerative disease of the brain, and it's terminal. And his onset started about two and a half years ago. So what was my best friend, main mentor, guy in my life, uh, he's still one of my best friends, uh, but all of a sudden his capacity started to decrease. And if you don't know about Huntington's disease, essentially it attacks, the brain begins to attack itself. It starts dying off. Brain cells die off. It's horrible. It's like the worst mix of diseases. It's like Alzheimer's, ALS, and dementia all mixed together. Uh, So your brain deteriorates, so your ability uh, to manage your emotions, manage your uh, overall well-being from the inside out is changing, and then also it's attacking your body, so you begin to be clumsy at first, and eventually it progresses to the point where most are in a full-time care facility, uh, and it's horrible. So two and a half years ago, that started, and he said, hey, you know, we planned this church together. I was an elder. I was leading a missional community, and he said, I got to step back completely. I'm going to go on full-time disability. I'm quitting my other job uh, that he had as well. He was multivocational. And it seems to me clearly that God, Tim's calling you to, to lead our church. And so I stepped into that role. And that was crazy to step into that role. We just had our first kid, Bo. That same year, I took over the church. Uh, he took over, you know, but you know what I'm saying. Took over as far as leadership goes. 
uh, I, I put my post down, I planted the flag. And, uh, but, you know, I took it over, and, uh, and then I, we had our first kid. You know, I'm working full-time at FCA, still raising support. There's so much going on, it was insane. And I was just crying out to God for help. And um, we went to the Soma church family uh, retreat thing that was down here, downtown. And at that retreat, I ran into Vince, and I swear I was on my last rope. I mean, I was ready to, I was ready to give up. My wife and I were just had it. We were to our limit. And uh, at that retreat, God did something great in our hearts. He really restored us. And he restored us all through, also with a person. Because uh, we experience brokenness and damage with people, and we also experience healing with people. Nobody gets healthy alone. And Vince, for me, was a huge part of that. I ran into him, sat next to him at the retreat first night. We're worshiping together and praising God. And then uh, he's like, man, I didn't realize everything that was going on with you guys. Let's meet up. And so uh, that relationship, one of many, really saved, I think, my heart in a lot of ways from just burnout and also, I think, breathed new life into our church because that was happening to me. And then from that, got some really good discernment from Todd and from Kenny and other guys. And that's how we then merged, actually, this year, January, with uh, another friend of mine who planted a church in, in Solana Beach called Surfside. So now... That's, that's kind of how I got here is because there's a whole bunch of relationships and things. I felt like it would be helpful for you guys to know a little bit who I am. Left a lot out, but hopefully I left the boring stuff out. So, and then, so of course, when, you know, Vince texted me yesterday, hey, you know, I'm not feeling well, can somebody fill in? Um, I, I text Josh because we were supposed to co-teach this morning, and he says, hey, man, what's family for? Let's go do it. So anyways, so I came today. So it's, it's great to be able to return a favor in just a small way and be here and hopefully tell some funny stories or something like that and uh, point you guys to Jesus a little bit and we can all get out of here unharmed. Um, so it was sweet that he also texted me and said, oh yeah, by the way, um, just want you to teach on our identity as worshipers. <laughs> something that for the rest of my life, I'm still going to be unpacking. Um, but yeah, do that in, in 25 or 30 minutes or so. So uh, I just want to say from the beginning, I honestly don't think that you can tackle your identity as a worshiper or even the act of worship in, in one session. So I'm going to do my best a little bit. But, um, but man, just the music side this morning was great. Um, and as I was sitting there up the front row, just sitting down, just kind of asking God, please don't help, help me not to screw this up. Uh, I felt, well, you know what? Actually, I'm worshiping right now. I'm just asking God, hey, I really need you. I need you to show up and do something I can't do. And as soon as I said, Lord, I just need you, all of a sudden, Lord, I need you. Oh, I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like, sweet, good timing on the song. So, uh, and I believe that really is the, the heartbeat of worship. I know I should probably end on this, but I'm going to start on this. And it's just that, God, I need you, is worship. Anytime in your day that you say, God, I need your help today. I need help right now. I need you for something, whatever that is. That in and of itself is worship. And it's amazing. But I want to encourage you to do that more and more often. And I'm going to actually ask God to do that right now um, so that we can all walk out of here a little bit closer to him and understand what, what and who we are. Jesus... Uh, I need you, we need you, and being worshipers is, uh, seems like a really religious thing, uh, it seems like a, a really lofty reality of our lives, and it is, uh, 
but at the same time, it's very simple and pragmatic. And I just ask that uh, you would be the teacher this morning, that you'd move me out of the way. Uh, we know that, God, your spirit, and we don't understand you more and more by getting smarter or by an intellectual ascent in some way, but we get to know you because you speak to our hearts. So I pray that you do that this morning. You'd move me out of the way and um, begin to reveal to us a little bit more about who you are, um, the things that you've done for us, and, and because of that, how you've made us and who we are. So do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So I'm going to start uh, by looking at some scripture. I figure if you're going to preach at church, you should probably look at the Bible at some point. So uh, I, I'm starting strong, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> let's look at uh, Genesis 1. Uh, I think it's right at the beginning somewhere in the Bible, if you're, if you're thumbing around pages. But you guys want to turn with me? I'm going to look at Genesis 1 for a second. Genesis 1, specifically in verse 26. So this is the very beginning scene of Scripture. It's a narrative of God creating everything. And it gets to a point where he makes human beings. I think this is significant for us. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I just want to stop on on that point. I think this is really cool, uh, ladies, that you are equally image bearers. You bear the image of God. No more, no less than a man, but you're made in God's image. You reflect to the world what God's like in some ways and a variety of ways and in ways that men can't. So we need you, okay? And if you've ever heard from church, whether implicitly or explicitly, that somehow you're lesser than, I'm just going to tell you that's not biblical thought because you are. God's made you in his image to show the world what he's like. That's that's an amazing reality. Men too, but I want to stop just briefly on that. Um, Also in his image bearing is a massive topic of just the reality of our existence, that we were made to reflect to the world what God's like. Just like my children kind of look like me, and they're going to say stuff in the same slang that we use in our house out to the world. They're bearing our image as parents. That's just a small example of the way that we image God. But this this is a huge, huge topic. But I'm constantly discovering the fact that there's things about us that God in and of himself does. Example would just be God is love. So as an image bearer, when we love, we're actually revealing to the world what it's like to be loved by God in some way. And, and the reason it feels so good to give isn't because giving's a good thing we should do. It's because God himself, by his nature, is a giver. That's the cross. And so when we give, we're actually, we're actually living out of our identity as image bearers. There's a whole bunch, as we create, those of you who are creative, God himself is creative. He's constantly creating. I mean, look at the complexities of our world and the beautiful things that he's made. We look at them and say, whoa, my gosh, that's just insane. Then as we create, we're actually giving glory to God. Whether we say out loud with our mouth, hey, this is glory to God, man. Check out this painting or whatever, or music or whatever the thing is. Just the fact that we create is because of image bearers. There's something in us that wants to do it. There's, there's something more going on in our world than just because things are good things or because oh, it seems fun. There's a deeper reality that God made us for that. 
But, but let's look further because although we are made in God's image, something else happens. And I know a lot of you guys have heard all this stuff, but I want to re- go over it anyways. In um, Genesis chapter 3, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 3, Satan enters the picture and he tempts Adam and Eve. I just want to read over this. It says uh, in Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took from fruit and she ate it. I'm just going to end there with that part. There's a a lie in the midst of, of that interaction with them. And it sounds a little bit like this. Hey, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. Hey, if you, if you eat this, you're not going to die. He's just saying you're going to die so you won't touch it. So you won't have the things that are really fun in this life. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God. But what do we already just look at? They were made as image bearers. They already were like God. So there's two lies in there. One of them is, God's holding out on you. Second one is, if you do something, if you take it in your own hands and you do it on your own, then you can be like God. Reverse order though. We are already image bearers. All, we had to do is wait, all they had to do is wake up and they're already like God. So it's a, there's, a two, there's a two-sided lie going on. One is, hey, what you do will equal what you are, which I think Vince covered last week, right? That's the narrative of our world. Hey, you are what you do. So do more so people think higher of you. Yeah. Or man, you're not doing enough, man. You know, things are, uh, or you do too much. You know, why don't you chill out, bro? Like, you're a doer. Making all, all kinds of that stuff, right? But, the, but in the kingdom of God, as image bearers, the, the, the system works the other way, Okay identity flows from who God is and what he's done. So the more we learn about who, about who God is, and that's what we will do this morning, the more we learn about who he is and the things that he's doing. I, you know, I, I tackle this a lot in my huddles for FCA. A lot of people have kind of a shallow thing. Like, well, God's really loving, you know? God loves us. But how do you know? I mean, when, really, when the crisis of life hits, this ethereal, like, God is love thing is not helpful. It's just not. It's an insufficient answer. And we know it. And actually, in crisis, most people cry out, God, I thought you were good. That's why we need the cross. We don't just need an ethereal answer. We need the cross that says, no, God loves you. By the way, I can prove it. Look at this thing in history where he actually showed up in the flesh, lived a perfect life for you, let people spit on him, beat his face to death, and went to a cross for you because he loves you. He took the death you should have died so you could have a life you can, you can never live, the life you've always wanted. That God would do that for you. Man, that's, that's good news, right? But we see Satan plants this lie in them that God's holding out. And by the way, you need to do something. Hey, don't, don't miss out. Hey, 
do that and you can be like God. So I, here it starts. And then this is where it starts. So now, so now we have our life of, I need to go find things, go find things to fill my life up. Boom, boom, boom. And that's the human experience. Um, the human condition is that we are existentially satisfied beings. In other words, we need things outside of ourselves to make ourselves happy. It's, it's just the reality of the situation. Nobody sits alone and is like, man, I, I get, there's, there's windows of that. But no one sits alone in isolation. In fact, that's a form of torture. The, the worst thing that they do in prison is solitary confinement to remove you from any human interaction. And people go crazy, right? Closed doors, boxed out. I know it sounds good for like a week. That'd be nice. It'd be dark. I could sleep, whatever. Trust me, I got a one month old, like a dark room for a while. It'd be awesome right now. But, but it's a form of torture to remove you from contact. We get satisfied, we find life in things outside of ourselves as image bearers because God made us like that. It's not just because, oh, we found this thing out in our sociology class. No, it's we're made as image bearers. We're made to worship God. We're made to just thank him, receive everything from him. Don't forget the garden scene. I didn't have time to cover all this, but the garden scene, they had every need met. I mean, abundantly. They could eat of all the, all the tree, of all the fruit. They had been given work to do, but they loved it, though. They loved life. They were with God, walking with them in the cool of the day. Minds, I mean, imagine that, walking with God in the middle of the day, asking him, hey, so why is that animal have four legs? And that one has, like, hops around. That's weird. Ram, why'd you do that? Well, because, Adam, I mean, I was, isn't that pretty sweet? You know, I mean, I can't imagine what the, I, I know, I went to, I was in a fraternity. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But the deal is we were made to, and I, I just, I was looking up, like, what is the definition of worship? Uh, so Merriam-Webster's is usually a, a good place to go. It means to revere, to venerate, to adore, to honor or admire profoundly and respectfully. I think a common man way of saying it is worship is worth-ship. It's describing something as, as having worth in a lot of it. So we're saying that, that thing is worth something. Things worth a lot ascribing worth, maybe pointing to and saying, yeah, that thing, that thing, that thing does it. And we were made for that. We were made to have the deepest longings of our heart satisfied by something outside of ourselves. But oftentimes we look for that thing and something other than God. I do it. You do it. Everybody does it. I think that's one of the key points of today is that I don't know where you're at spiritually, but every single one of us is a worshiper. Every single one of us and I think that's where this, this conversation gets really whacked out at times. I think the, the secular world will say, ah, oh, you people, whatever you are, faith background folks, you guys worship over here. We're not into that worship thing. Leave us out of it. It's like, no, 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 no. You're just as much in it. Everybody's worshiping. Everybody's looking and ascribing worth to something that gives their life significance. Whether it's their relationships, whether it's the number of their account balance, whether it's the neighborhood they live in or what their kids do and how they perform, everybody is worshiping something. And we are too. And except for us, it's a little more complicated because we're worshiping all kinds of things. At times we're worshiping Jesus. At times we're worshiping the opinion of other people around us. At time, so we're all over the place. But the reality is we're all doing it. Uh, and, and I think that's critical. Uh, and, and scripture actually talks about this, this, this dynamic of life. And I want to look uh, now at Romans chapter 1, if you'd turn with me. I think we have it up on the screen also. Romans chapter 1. Paul says this in uh, verse 18. 
He said, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who do what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. And through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not going, knowing God. That's called general revelation. We look at the complexities of our universe and go, okay, who did that? That thing's, that's amazing. Just there's the brain pathways, the complexity of the human body, the eyeball. You know, you get, it's, whoa. This is, a, that's an amazing thing. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in the heavens and the earth. Verse 21 though, yes, they knew God. They know him. They know he's out there, but they wouldn't worship him as God. Or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. So they worshiped and served, in verse 25, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Another translation says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Instead of worshiping and going to the one who really satisfies, they started to look to other things. In the Old Testament, it talks a lot about idolatry and, you know, and, you know the golden calf and things like that. And, that. and that's part of it, for sure. But then Paul expands as they, they just, they look to the creator thing and say the creator. They worship. They, they, they pointed at it and said, man, that thing, that thing right there, that, that'll give me life. It's the if this then statement. If I have this, then everything will be okay. If you ever catch yourself saying that, essentially, you, you can tell where your worship is, is directed at. It's that this thing, right? Man, if I can get this job, then I'm styling. Things are good. Life's good. Um, no, no one in here is innocent of that. I'm, I'm doing it, I think, even this morning in some way. If this sermon goes well, God, you know, you're good, right? Or, you know, so even perform, our own performance, even for, quote, like, good things. Good things done for the wrong reason are still sin. I think this verse points to one of two things I want to land on today. One is that worship is a heart posture. It's, it's not just something that we do, but it's the way with which we view our lives, the things that add value to them, the things that we can find the longings of our heart satisfied with. That's, that's I think, point number one. That all of your life is an opportunity for you to worship in some way. We're always worshiping. Everything we do is an affirmation of what or who we're looking to for our significance. The bad side about that is that we're often worshiping something or somebody that's not God. And every time we do that, and uh, some of the DNA material, I don't know if you guys have used it, Tim Chester, I think is where they extracted the verbiage from, said that every sin, and really sin is living my life my way for me, because I'm God, (laughs) instead of living life God's way for God, because everything's his, and he, it, that's where I find my, my value, my purpose. 
It says that every, behind every sin is this finger-wagging accusation against God. God, you're not good enough, so I need that. That thing is way more satisfying than you are, right? Like, God, I know you give peace, but uh, I just don't believe it. You can't give peace. If I have enough money for my salary, I'll have peace at home. God, you can't, for me, it was, you know, the fraternity life, it was partying, all that stuff, like getting attention from girls. It's like, God, you're not good. I need that to make me satisfied in life and have fun. That's scary business. <laughs> um, I'm going leave to leave you on that one for a second. That right there is the root. That's the root of idolatry is that this heart that longs to go find satisfaction. The second point is that worship is a lifestyle. So roots produce fruit. Right? I'm sure you guys have talked about that a little bit here. Is that trees bear fruit. The fruit is the, the visible image of what the tree is. So let's look at Romans 12 for a second. Romans 12.1, this, this verse came to my head as soon as I heard about this theme of, of uh, our identity as worshipers. In Romans 12.1, Paul writes, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Actually, right before that, I'm sorry, verse, uh, Romans 11, that last verse, it says, Everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. And so... Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. There's that theme. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So something going on inside, what we think about, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And then he goes on, actually, and I didn't put this on the slide, but in verse six, he says, in his grace, God's given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God's given you. If he's given you the gift of serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God is giving you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So this worship, this direction of our significance of life actually has a fruit. And God's given us gifts to go use. So there's a lifestyle involved here. There's, there's going to be ways that we're going to see the things that we worship. Two examples I want to give is, one is that your life is a billboard. If I spend enough time with you, or if anybody spends enough time with you, they're going to see what's on your billboard. Where do you find life? What are the things you look to to find significance and value and enjoyment and pleasure and future and hope and all those things? We're always advertising, always. And it's on the billboard of our life. Whether it be pull your bank account, I could probably tell you, because that's for us, that's a, the easy one as Americans. Our bank account usually shows us the things we really find life in. Um, the second one is this, is that uh, I love this example, especially for those that think, man, I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm buying this, but you're always worshiping and it's as if you're holding a garden hose that's on. Imagine that, just see that image. You're holding a garden hose and water's coming out and you can't turn it off. That's us. We're always worshiping. And the question is, what are we watering? What, what's, where's our worship being pointed? And we walk around all day doing that. 
given significance, either we're worshiping ourselves, okay, I'm in control, I got this, I can do this, whatever else. And part of that's a good thing. I mean, having some self-confidence is not, is not a bad thing. But there's, a, there's an, an always ongoing happening flow of our worship and our energy that's, that's showing people where we find our life. Uh, I think that's really important to know because you can't shut it off. You don't just stop worshiping now. It's just your mind, your heart begins to drift throughout your day to different things. You're saying, okay, the if this then thing keeps changing, right? That formula, like, well, if that, okay, okay, I'm good now because if that works out then, or if, if she would just stop saying, you know, then I'd just be okay, right? Our, our worship has become my wife. If she would just stop like getting on me about that thing, then I would have some inner peace and our, our house would be mellow, okay? Where's my hope? My hope is a circumstantial change. It's not in God. Then God to do a work in my heart or to do work in her heart or that I'm okay even if she's not okay. Those types of things come from a rightly placed worship to God. And that's our fruit. That's where we see all this. That's where we see in our lives, we can already, hopefully, you're, you're being able to pick out things that you tend to put worship in, that you're pointing at saying, you know what? Yeah, I know God or yeah, I follow Jesus, but, but man, there's a big part of my life that worships this other thing too. What does Jesus say about all this, though? <laughs> I think that's always a good question to ask when you're looking at Scripture. Um, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 4. And this is the interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well. And uh, it's kind of an interesting text because there's a lot going on here. And in verse 19... Uh, Jesus had just finished telling this woman about the husband, the multiple husbands that she's had and the guy that she's sleeping with now. And her response is, in verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim that it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming where it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation is through the Jews. But the, same, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. She's talking about what mountain do you go to? <laughs> Wait, what, how, so what does worship look like? Well, you guys pray on your knees, we pray standing up. Oh, you worship, you have your hands in the air? Well, we worship and we, we do hymns only. You know, at, He's thinking, no, hold on, you got this all messed up. This isn't a religious preference thing happening here. This is a who God is thing happening here. Jesus is always doing this stuff, man. He's irritating at times because he's always, he's always thinking, taking the things that you thought you knew about him and then kind of tweaking it on you. So, but, the, but, but the point of it is a little tweaking on you is that he's trying to pull you in more. Hey, get past those things. You, you got me in a box. Did you notice this, though? And that's what he's doing here with this, with this woman. She says, oh, you're a prophet. Okay, so which mountain should we, should we worship at? And he makes this point. It's not about religious observance. 
This is an inside out thing. This is spirit and truth. The cool thing about Jesus later is says, I am the truth. <laughs> so we worship him, and, and it's a spiritual reality. It's an ongoing, all of life reality. Thanks, Jesus, for backing my point up. Um, but let's look at Matthew 15. I'm going to fly through this part. And in Matthew 15 and verse 7, I'll give you a second to get there. I think we got it. Oh, we got it up. You can just look up there. But in verse 7, um, the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus, and they say, you know, why don't, your, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Again, religious mindset typically is outside-in change process, and Jesus goes, hold on, I got a whole other thing happening here. The kingdom is an inside-out change process. Let's look at this. He says, you know, they ask him, why, why are they disobeying our traditions? They're not washing their hands, right? Super important uh, thing, obviously, back in the day. How do you wash your hands? Re- ceremonially purified people, outside in. If your hands are clean, you can worship God rightly. Jesus responds, I'm going to skip a little bit, but he says, you hypocrites, in verse 7, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And then Jesus calls the crowd to come near. He says, listen, try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then he goes on to say in verse 16, because his disciples say, hey, what the heck are you talking about? He says, don't you understand yet? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart comes evil thoughts murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. This is an inside-out process. Changing your worship isn't singing a fourth song before the sermon starts, right? It's not doing more of religious activities. It's not just, hey, I'm going to worship God more, so I'm going to spend just hey, five minutes more on the word. Okay, that, that's how I fix it. What he's saying is your entire life, you have an opportunity. Everything that you do, every imaginable thing you do can be done as an act of worship to something. Yeah. Even going to work tomorrow morning. I mean, it, it could be, maybe even for the first two hours, it could just be about you. And then all of a sudden it clicks. And then God goes, hey, remember? <laughs> remember the talk? Oh, yeah, it's that simple. It's an ongoing reality. Like we're, and that's where I want to hopefully leave you with today is that we have an awesome opportunity to apply this. I always say or ask the same question, which is, a, so what? <laughs> okay, Tim, cool talk, worship, it's all of life, I'm holding the hose, whatever. So what? <laughs> right? No, honestly, like I've heard a lot of good talks and I walk away going, oh, man, that was epic. Okay, well, what are we having for lunch? <laughs> you know, um, that's just my style. Like, I'm just one of those, we need to, how do we apply this? I have a quote for you, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with my takeaways, or, or hopefully our takeaways. And this is another Tim Chester quote. He says, we worship our way into problems, and we'll worship our way out. Destructive or sinful behaviors like lying, manipulation, violence, theft, adultery, addictions, eating disorders, even negative or sinful emotions like anxiety. Depression, envy, guilt, bitterness, pride, they all arise out of our hearts who don't trust God and do not worship God. And so the solution is repentance and faith. It seems to always come back to this one. 
It's repentance doesn't stop doing bad things, start doing good things. It's repentance is a turning to. The power is never in the turning away. Hey, hey stop doing that. Stop. It's not repentance. The power is turning back to, saying, you know what? I've been worshiping this thing, me, or her approval of me, or uh, this, that. Like my emotional well-being and it, my anxiety over the money in our, in our account, I'm tired of giving that worth in my life. I'm tired of that being the hope in my life. God, you're the only one that deserves worship. Boom, that's repentance and faith. That's restored faith. God, you're the only one that can give me the peace that I'm looking for. That is the ongoing daily challenge that we have in front of us, is to constantly be turning from the things that we give worship to, the things that we allow ourselves to look to is to give us significance and value and worth, and just to turn it back to Jesus. Turn it back to the only one that honestly can. And that's, I think, the deception for us, is that we don't do that because we don't think that there's value there. We worship other things because we actually believe it. Right? We, we, we look at the, we allow our, the number in our bank account to have so much reign over our life because we genuinely believe that is going to dictate our well-being in our life. No one's convincing us of that. We're totally convinced. I want you to be totally convinced that there's somebody out there, you have a good father who loves to give gifts to his kids that made you, knows why you were made, knows what tomorrow brings for you, knows why you'll wake up tomorrow, knows how you'll find life, knows how you'll find freedom, knows how you'll find peace, knows why to every imaginable question that you'll ever ask him, knows even the things that you're passionate about that you haven't even discovered yet, knows the skills that he gave you, knows the passions that he's given you for changing the world, every imaginable little thing he built so that you could sing a song that says, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Man, to do that, to be able to turn to that because we actually believe he can. There is worship that is a farce. We can sing those songs, guys, and not believe it. And you know, I'll be honest, there's a lot of times in church I've sang songs and the minute I went, you know, God, I'm sorry, I actually don't believe this. That's worship. You know, to be honest with him, to go, hey, oh yeah, God, by the way, since you know all my thoughts before I even say them out loud, uh, I might as well tell you anyways, Right? But isn't that amazing? And the good news of the gospel is that, as Tim Keller would say, like, you're more wicked and, and sinful than you ever dared believed. When you recognize how much, though, oh boy, I worship a lot of things all the time, that's going to do something. You, the gospel better be good news, guys. But the reality is you, you are more flawed, more sinful than you ever dared believe. But at the same time, because of Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine. That your faulty worship doesn't keep God from loving you. In fact, that's the reason he came, to restore our worship. To put us back in a position where we didn't have to do it out of fear and I better sing every song out loud with my mouth and I should raise my hand so other people think I'm really worshiping. No, no, it's so that our hearts would say, in you and you alone, Lord, I have everything I need. Man, there's no intellectual thing that can get you there. There's only like, Spirit, help me to understand that. Help me to turn to you in the moments when I look to other things. Help me in that. That's my so what. Those are my so what points. One is, holy moly. I don't know if you guys say crap here. I would have looked. I'm just going to say, holy crap. I worship all this stuff all the time. Man, how could God get over this? Bang, good news of the gospel. He already did. It, Jesus said it's finished. You don't have to feel bad about that. I'm doing it too. I, re- I, mo- I mourn over that. I want to worship him fully all the time, but I don't a lot. 
to thank, good, thank God for the good news of the gospel, that he doesn't require perfect worshipers because Jesus worshiped perfectly on our behalf. And secondly, what do I do? Well, you tell God the brutally honest truth. Stop hiding it. Just tell him, look, God, I really wish I could believe you fully. I could find my significance and worth, but I really find a lot of hope over here and I'm stuck. I really want this thing. I really believe if, I, if this changes, then I'll be happy. And I don't want to be like that, but I am. That's where I'm at. Guys, that in and of itself is worship. Just to be, have an ongoing real dialogue with God. Worship is telling God things that are true about himself. We could spend the rest of today just making a list of all the things God is and does that are amazing. We'd never be able to run out of things. And all we're doing is describing what he's like. We can't overly lavish God with things about himself. So just telling God, hey, you know what I'm thinking already. That's worship. Repentance and faith. Redirect the hose, guys. The hose is on. It's flowing. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus came to give a rich and satisfying life, he said. I came to give life and life abundantly. I didn't come so that you would obey, so you'd come and you would just do things for me and get it right so I could be happy with you. And he came to give a rich and satisfying life. He came to set us free to worship again as we were designed to, to walk in the garden again with a dad who loves us that wants to lavish good gifts on his kids. Isn't that a different way of worshiping? Man, the, the gospel is not about shoulds. It's about get-tos. All the stories Jesus is telling us about parties, man. The kid that comes back, the prodigal son, he comes back, what does, what does the father do? He throws a party. What is the, well, the woman who's looking for the coin, invites her friend over, they find it? What does she do? She celebrates. Man, Jesus is inviting us into a party. And let me tell you what, at that party, there's a lot of worship going on. There's a lot of telling God, man, I don't know why I spent so much time in my life looking to the approval of other people to tell me that I was loved. Man, you were going to tell me that every day. Why, why did I spend so much of my life chasing down things that I thought would make me worthwhile or worthy, or successful, or whatever else. Man, I believed, guys, just like you, I believed. I, I gave worship to those things, and they never satisfied me. So honestly, I, I kind of ran out of options. That's how I got up here. <laughs> None of the other things that I ever worshipped ever gave me what I hoped they could. And that's the lie. God's holding out on you. No, he's not. I'm going to read a psalm and I'm going to pray. And I think the worship band is going to come back up here. But in Psalm 1611, Psalmist writes this, Lord, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Thank you, Jesus. You lived a life that constantly displayed what worship looks like. You lived a life surrendered to the point of a cross. You lived a life full of compassion and mercy and grace. I'm convinced that your life was not boring. I'm convinced that you didn't have a life filled with anxiety and fear about what tomorrow or the next year might bring. I never see a story in scripture of you fearful. But we see so many stories of you extending mercy, extending grace, even to those that try to trick you and trap you. It's amazing to us. 
I thank you for living a life of perfect worship and, and imputing that to us so that when we stand broken, when we sing songs and we don't really even believe some of the lyrics, you've already covered us. We can sing freely, not under condemnation, but under freedom and grace and love. I just pray for all those in this room today that catch themselves even today saying, if this blank, then I'll be okay or then I'll feel loved. I pray that you take whatever that this thing is, you take the power of that thing totally out of their lives. You would allow them to turn their worship back to you. If we have you, Jesus, if we have your presence, if you show us the way to life, you say you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. I just pray for New City Church, whoever here is guests, that they would come to a place where they would experience your presence. Maybe even in this next song, they would hear you whisper to them that everything they've looked to other than you is never going to satisfy and that you are and you don't make false promises. You're not like a broken earthly dad. You're going to be there and you love to give good gifts to your kids. Help us to believe that, Jesus. Help us to be quick to repent and turn back to you in faith and find life. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Tim. Let's just thank Tim. Thank you so much for speaking that word to us.